Hello and welcome to episode 1 of the Sport et al. podcast. This is a sport podcast that does deep dives into the most intriguing and entertaining topics in sport. Rather than everyday conversations, this is more about conversations that would be on the underbelly of sport, such as today's topic, which is sponsorship in sport. It can be things like conspiracy theories in sport, betting scandals, drug use, something like contract clauses, and so on and so forth. We won't give too many of the episodes away just yet. The reason I picked these are essentially I want to figure out the answers. I want to figure out what are the most ridiculous betting scandals. What are the most ridiculous things that people or players have put in a contract clause. So based on the topics that we've just discussed, it's clear that it's not just going to be one sport. It's going to be essentially every sport, depending on how that sport integrates with the particular topic we're talking about. So the goal of the podcast is to essentially provide relaxing, educational, enjoyment, representation of particular topics in sport. I'm not an expert in them. I have just chosen topics that I found will be entertaining, researched them and put them together and present them in, as I said, an enjoyable and entertaining way. It's something that I've wanted to do for a while now. I decided I would get my two favourite things, talking shit and sport, put them together, and here we are. So we're going to get into it, and we're going to talk about our first topic, which is sponsorship in sport. We're going to talk about an overview of sponsorship, then we're going to compare it to advertisement. We will do a history of sponsorship, where it originated, how it has developed, and where it is now. And in the second half, we're going to talk about a particular company that uses sponsorship in a unique way that has helped it to develop to where it is now. So the first question is, what is sponsorship? Sponsorship is essentially an endorsement or marketing strategy that brands or companies use to promote their product. Companies like to align their image with a particular player or brand or team. This money that they pay out to teams or players helps their growth. And if we look at it from a marketing perspective, they say there's four processing mechanics to marketing. The first one is exposure. And if we use Nike as an example, they get massive amounts of exposure from their sponsorship, let's say on football shirts. They are also by far the largest sponsor in sport. The second one of them processing mechanics is articulation. Articulation is about the story that the brand or product tells. So again, if we use Nike as as an example, they have brilliant ads that promote resilience. And when you think of training, you think of how hard it can be. Sometimes you think of resilience, you associate that with Nike, you know, the just do it tagline or slogan. The third process and mechanic of marketing is identification. So identification with the brand's values that you also may hold. In terms of Nike, again, the first thing that comes to my head is Colin Kaepernick, who was the NFL quarterback who decided to kneel for the National Anthem of America. This was done in protest to the racial inequality that was being displayed in the country at the time. He said that he did not respect the flag, that did not respect all colours, and he would not stand for it. So this 
hit home with a lot of fans and a lot of people that wore Nike because Nike did an advertisement with Kaepernick's face and a very simple quote that said, believe in something even if it means sacrificing everything with a little night tick and just do it at the bottom. This was a massive advertisement as this kind of showed that Nike stands behind him. Nike is representing what he represents. And they also want to feel like the people that buy their products are also represented. So it's a very simple marketing strategy. You've seen similar things happen in the opposite way where particular athletes have done something negative and Nike and other sponsorship brands have dropped that particular athlete because they don't want to be associated with what they do. They can do it both ways. The fourth and final processing mechanic in marketing is reciprocity. This means to hold events or to organize events. And the particular brand or company that we're going to talk about is very infamous for this. And I'm sure a lot of people can guess what it is. Smaller sports that maybe aren't well represented or don't have the funding to run events like this, this is one marketing strategy that some companies target. They know that they have a niche market here that if they run particular events, the people that take part in these events are going to have some sort of connection to their brand. But we'll talk about that more later. The three outcomes that companies are hoping for from these processing mechanics are thinking, feeling, and doing. They want the consumer to think in a certain way, feel a certain way, and then obviously do certain things, mainly buy their product. So I said we talk about the difference between sponsorship and advertisement. Although they're very similar, they are also very different. So a sponsorship, as I've discussed, is paying money to a brand or a player. They represent the values that the company have, and it's a lot easier for people to buy certain things through companies, clubs, or people. What I mean by that is people don't like to be sold to. When I think about YouTube ads, I think about how I nearly try to intentionally not buy buy the product. If I see a certain thing that has been advertised to me constantly and wrecking my head, I nearly want to go out of my way not to buy it. If I see, you know, favorite player wearing a particular jersey, I want to buy the jersey. Or if I see a particular player, you know, sponsored by a particular brand, that brand's in my head, I associate that brand with the player I like, and inevitably people will buy more of the stuff. So nowadays they're finding that people are less inclined to go for advertisements and more for sponsorship. They actually make more money out of sponsorship. This is in terms of sport. Um, I can think of particular times you see advertisements and it's a bit cringy. You see Liverpool with the Nivea, you know, and they're putting the Nivea up and say, please buy this. You know, whereas if they do it more subtly, it's a lot more profitable. If we look at salaries based on sponsorship and on salary itself, salary from Let's say if you are a UFC fighter from the purse you get for winning or a footballer, your salary week to week. If we look at the top 10 athletes and the top 10 paid athletes last year, McGregor was number one. Number two was Messi. And although they're totally different athletes, Messi is playing week in, week out, getting a consistent wage. 
McGregor was number one. And the reason McGregor was number one was simply sponsorship. McGregor made five times what Messi made in sponsorship. And similar, Messi only made a fifth of what McGregor made in sponsorship, but five times of what McGregor made in salary. So although Messi is making probably, I don't know, 600k a week, McGregor is actually on top due to sponsorship. He makes millions doing all advertisements, doing sponsorship deals. So it's showing us that sponsorship is nearly more important in terms of a salary nowadays than the salary itself. If you look on that list from 2021, Roger Federer is on that list. He is by far the lowest in terms of salary winnings. Now, I think that's mainly because he didn't play a lot last year. He's a very low salary compared to the other ones, but he has the second highest in terms of endorsements, in terms of sponsorship. And on Roger Federer, he also was one of the first, he was the first tennis player to reach $1 billion in earnings. So over the course of his career, he has earned $1 billion. Majority of this is coming through sponsorship deals. He was sponsored by numerous different things. And the thing about sports athletes is they're not bound to one sponsor. Roger Federer has numerous sponsors. He's sponsored by Mercedes and Rolex and massive brands like this. So he's getting money from all sorts of directions. And this is unbelievable for athletes nowadays. If you think back to even the 70s, football players making an average wage and then their career is over and they don't have any other form of income after it. You see them going back to normal jobs. Nowadays, if you have any personality at all, you can make money for the rest of your life. If we think of two examples right now, Mika Richards and Roy Keane, they are a prime example of how you can make nearly more money after your retirement than when you play. Now, I know in terms of money and salary, it has changed a lot since they played, but the image of them, you know, chalk and cheese working together, that image is worth millions. They could have their own show, what they essentially do on Sky Sports, but they could have their own show that they make money off, that they could get millions in advertisements. So for current athletes and retired athletes, sponsorship is absolutely massive. It was worth 57 billion in 2020 in the US to the sports market, 57 billion. So it is the backbone of a lot of organizations currently. But how did it get this big? We're gonna have to take a look back at where it originated and how it has progressed to make so much money. We're gonna have to take a look back at ancient Greece, as we will so often do when we come to things and how they originated. The one of the first signs or first evidence of sponsorship was in kind of the first sport. So the first official sport that is still being done today is wrestling. And wrestling originated from gladiators. So in the 5th century BC, we have ancient Greece, we have gladiators, and we have huge powerful families. These powerful families, not only did they sponsor sport, but they sponsored art and science. 
and we're going to talk about a particular family that did that on a large scale basis in a minute but before we get there we talk about Leonidas. Leonidas was one of the first and earliest donors to Olympia. What he did is he built a luxurious building. He called it the Leonidaeon and he used to host guests and visitors that may come look at the gladiator fighting. And essentially this was the first documented example of name rights. So naming rights like we see now with numerous stadiums. You know the Allianz Stadium or the Barclays Centre. You've even seen Barclays sponsored the whole Premiership. Barclays Premiership. So they not only sponsored stadiums but also whole competitions. So this naming rights actually originated back in ancient Rome. You had people like Julius Caesar who built his own gladiator training facility to help promote gladiators and help promote better fighters. So this has always worked and always happened down through history. And we were at 5 BC but we're going to fast forward well into the 1400s around 1430 to 1470 we had a family called the Medici family and they had a massive influence on Italy and mainly on Florence. Blind Bay also did a podcast a couple of weeks ago about the Medici family and he talked and explained about how they had a massive influence on science and on art. They did this by sponsoring scientists and artists. Obviously it wasn't a very profitable venture in the 1400s so the majority of scientists and artists had massive sponsors. These were usually coming from massive wealthy families or even the government and they did this to disperse their influence. So they wanted to make sure that everyone knew that they were the wealthy and powerful family in the area. They spent Medici family roughly nearly 500 million in 40 years which would be the equivalent of billions in today's age. They did this as I said to diffuse their influence. They wanted to spread around their power around Florence and around Italy. So what they did was they put some of their brightest and best scientists, sports people and artists all around Italy so that if they produced a fine piece of work that they could say that I am sponsored by the Medici family and that then spreads their name even further. They get more exposure. They sponsored people like Galileo and Michelangelo, heavily sponsored them. They were their main sponsor. So they are actually directly responsible for some of the best art and science in recent times. And the majority of the previous sponsorship we've been talking about is to do with art and science. It's not until maybe the 1800s where we see a massive influx in sponsorship into sport. Obviously you have a lot of financial backers previous to make sure that the organizations run, but as organizations get bigger and more worldwide, they need more finance to help it develop. An example of one of the first sponsorship deals was between Michelin and Charles Turin, who was a French cyclist. Michelin, as we all know, is a tire company and they actually not necessarily sponsored him but they gave him or they convinced him to use their tires for the Paris Brest Paris race it was in 19 sorry excuse me 1891 
and it was actually tw nearly 1200 kilometers long. It was twice as long as any other previous race. And lucky for Michelin, he won it. And this gave Michelin an, a very good representation in the market, therefore increasing their exposure and increasing their sales. Another success story of advertisement or sponsorship in sport was very soon after, 1896, which was one of the first mod modern Olympic Games. The Olympic Games took a long break. 1896 was the return. And there was two main products or brands that we still know today that advertised on the program. They are Kodak and Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola realized how important sponsorship was and soon after, in 1928, they entered a partnership, a 104-year partnership with the Olympic Games to become their main drink sponsor. My personal favorite story regarding sponsorship in sport in history is about Bayer. Bayer was a big pharma company and around the early 1900s, two Bayer employees went to the company's management and asked for permission for a gym to be built. The gym was primarily for gymnastics, but a couple of years later, I think it was around two years later, um, in 1906, they formed the first ever soccer club and named Bayer Leverkusen. Leverkusen was the city that the company was in. And that is still today one of the oldest, I suppose, partnerships, sponsored partnerships that still exists. The fact that Bayer still are in the name and Bayer Leverkusen. And another side note, the owners that decided, yeah, we can build this and you can have your club, they also had a rule that the Bayer Leverkusen team had to attend the gymnastic tournaments that were on. So here we have one of the earliest modern-day sports sponsorships in football. Bayer are still in the name of Bayer Leverkusen. You have um, an element of naming rights there. So they are getting exposure through Bayer Leverkusen. Although most people don't know that that's the case. They don't associate Bayer Leverkusen with this pharmaceutical company. So we are in the 1900s. And in the 1900s, sponsorship went mental. With the widely available color TV, sponsorships and advertisements went through the roof. They brought massive amounts of money into sports and enabled some sports to go global. So we wouldn't see some of the sports that we do on TV now only for sponsorship. The fact that they have more money for televising and promoting allows more people around the world to see and watch the sport. And it's ironic to have a look at what was actually being promoted or what was being advertised by these sponsors. And in the mid-1900s, the majority of sponsorships were around tobacco and, and beer and beverages. And if you compare them sponsors to the main sponsors of today, there is a big difference. The main sponsors today are finance, tech companies, car companies, uh, energy companies, and one massive global sponsor, which is an energy drink, which we all know as Red Bull. So we're gonna do a deep dive into Red Bull, how it became a company, how it has transformed its company into a global worldwide brand, and how it's used a simple and unique sponsorship method that has allowed it to dominate the global market.
So Red Bull was first produced by a duck farmer from Thailand. A fellow called Charlie Yuwitche, who lived in central Thailand and moved slightly south to Bangkok to work for his brother who was a chemist. He worked with his brother in Bangkok for a while before he started his own pharmaceutical company. I can't remember the name exactly. I think it was like TC Fitness. Not TC Fitness. TC Fitness. TC Fitness is... TC Fitness is a woman who does sports classes in Bellionis. It was not TC Fitness. I think it was TC Pharma. Um, so he started his own pharmaceutical company. He researched a couple of energy drinks that were on the market in Thailand. The main one, the most popular one, was called Vitamin D or Vitamin D. It was originally produced in Japan, but it was the best seller in Thailand. Vitamin D was more targeted towards the wealthy people in Thailand. But the problem here was that 70% of people lived in poverty at that time. So this is around the 1970s. 1970s was just the end of the Vietnam War and Thailand was still recognized as a third world country. Although it was highly developing and developing very quickly, it was still regarded as a poor country. So the majority of people were normal everyday people. So Charlie Yuwitcha, he decided he was going to market a drink and make a drink for the more common people. People that did normal everyday jobs, truck drivers, farmers, uh, factory workers. So he developed a drink with caffeine, B vitamins and taurine. Taurine is a chemical that is naturally made in the body that gives us energy. Um, it helps our circulatory system to work and there's a myth that it's made of bull semen. It is not. It is naturally made in the, bo- uh, the body. So he used these ingredients, combined them, and he made what is now known as the Red Bull Energy Drink. So he promoted it, or he launched it, in 1976. 1976, Red Bull, as we know it, was created. It was originally known as Kratting Dang, which means the Red Gower. And fun fact, the symbol of red bull if we break it down there is a sun that is supposed to represent energy there is the gower and it's not what we would think a normal bull a gower is the largest living bovine animal and this is picked because it's representing a powerful animal and then the red bull the red gower is to represent perseverance so even from the start even from the logo charlie wanted to represent a lot of positive emotions in the people of Thailand. He wanted this drink to represent the feelings of everyday people and encourage them to persevere, and per- uh, encourage them to be powerful and have energy. This kind of links in to how he actually promoted his drink first. So what he did was he sponsored local Muay Thai fights. So that was Thailand's biggest sport and it got massive in the 1970s. So this was the perfect way into the market. He started to sell the drinks and promote fights. This worked perfectly because this encapsulated the national spirit of Thailand. So this new drink was now associated with the spirit of Thailand and one of their national sports. This also sets the scene for how Red Bull goes about its sponsorship methods nowadays. So it started off sponsoring specific sports, mainly Muay Thai, to promote the drink and nowadays and as we will get into it does the same thing 
But if you look on the Red Bull website, you will see that it's an Austrian drink, or will state that it's an Austrian drink. And where that comes from is a fellow called Dietrich Mechevic. He was an Austrian toothpaste salesman. So he had numerous different jobs, but at the time he was a toothpaste salesman. He had an international business trip in Thailand. So obviously it's a long flight, get to Thailand, you're a bit jet lagged. He grabbed himself a can of Kratting Dang and he noticed that his jet lag was completely cured. And he was baffled by this. He thought this was fantastic. He'd never had anything like this in his life. He had so much energy. His jet lag was just completely gone and he was ready to go. So this initially sparked his interest in the product. He went to Charlie Uwicha and decided, I want to make a deal. I'll put in 500k, you put in 500k, and I'll market it and produce it in Europe. So a couple of years later, um, it got to Europe through Dietrich Metovic and initially had some problems because of the ingredients. Not a lot of drinks had the particular ingredients in Europe at the time. One of the main ones, or its main challenger at the time, was Lucasade. And it's funny that Lucasade was its challenger because at the time, both of them were nearly marketed as sort of remedies. They nearly looked like medicine bottles. And this is how they were kind of promoted. If you look back at the old Red Bull can, well, it wasn't necessarily a can, it was a glass bottle. It was like that dark brown glass bottle you'd get like Calpol or particular medicines in. When it came to Europe, it was rebranded into its you know, modern aluminium tin and not much has changed in the design since. So it had some trouble getting into Europe initially, very, very little trouble, but it got there. And as I said, its main challenger was Lucasid. So they needed some way to get into the market and how they did it in Thailand was to sponsor Muay Thai fights. They did something similar in Europe. They had two main ways to get into the market in Europe. One of them was through brand managers. And a brand manager is a person or a young influential person that would have been in college. What they would have done is have them as a brand manager who worked for Red Bull. They would have drove around their minis, you see, with the Red Bull on the back. And they would have gave out free Red Bull at parties that were organized by Red Bull. So this got the Red Bull exposure into young people. So it was in college nightlife. And although they didn't mean to do it, they created some drinks with Red Bull that was essential to its growth, such as, you know, Jägerbahn, Jäger Red Bull. This wasn't their intention, but inevitably through college people mixing it with other drinks, it became a key part of their success. The other way they did it was similar to the way they did it in Thailand. They sponsored sports and mainly extreme sports. So at the time, 1970s, sponsorship had been around for a while now. Your major players in sport, your major leagues had sponsors already. They weren't struggling that much for money compared to smaller sports. And smaller sports such as like hand gliding and skiing and mountain biking, these are the sports that Red Bull targeted. Red Bull targeted these sports so that they have smaller, specific groups of people drinking Red Bull. Soon, these people had a a very quick affiliation with Red Bull because 
hang gliding or skiing or snowboarding, they didn't have a lot of massive sponsors at the time. So when Red Bull came in and started putting on particular events and sponsoring them, they had this, you know, connection with them. And this kind of worked on one of the four processing mechanics, mechanics of marketing, which was reciprocity, putting on events. So Red Bull organized the events, Red Bull readily available at the events. Soon whole sports were associated with this particular drink. You had Red Bull putting on other sorts of events, their own events, which was absolutely massive to their growth. They put on events like the um, flug tag. The flug tag is where you make your own homemade flying device. So you might see it on YouTube or TV where kind of like hand gliders, you go off um, a cliff or usually a man-made kind of um, board and you want to see how far you can fly. You usually just see them crash straight into the water. But the whole thing about this is they're massive events. Loads of people come out. Red Bull are providing entertainment. Um, similar with the soapbox. So that's, you know, specifically Red Bull soapbox race. One of the major events they put on over the last number of years was the Stratos. Which was when your man, I forget his name, he jumped from space. Um, this was literally just a marketing strategy for Red Bull. People viewed it and tuned in and your man was sponsored by Red Bull. He had it on the arm, I think. Again, this is just for mere exposure. So they started to sponsor events and then they kind of went into sponsoring people. First person they actually sponsored was an F1 driver, a fellow called Jared Berger. He was very successful. He had won 10 Grand Prix with three different teams. And they say that he actually functioned on Red Bull. So not only was he a good sponsor, he was a very good advocate because, you know, you associate F1 driving with quick reactions and a lot of energy. So he was their first official sponsor. And it's funny that they are sponsoring F1 initially because fast forward to 2021 and you would have their arguably the best success in terms of sponsorship when Max Verstappen won the F1 championship. So Red Bull are used to sponsoring and running other events. Not only F1, not only football, but as I said, soapbox, flug tag. You also have the cliff diving, which is also a great you know, event and experience. And if you go onto their website, it's actually very hard to find what they are selling. If you didn't know what Red Bull was, you would actually struggle to find it. You would think it is a, it's an events company that it just puts on random events. One of the first things I saw when I went onto the website was Red Bull Wings. It was literally a paper plane competition. Make a paper plane, who can go the furthest? And when you think of even the product they sell, it's still very basic. You have your Red Bull can. That's like the majority of what they sell. That single can. Yeah, they have a tropical, but like no one really drinks tropical. Very rarely you see people drinking zero. It's just Red Bull, a can of Red Bull. So although that they have diversified their sponsorship and they're in, they have their hand in every pot, they still rely on the sale of practically a single product, which is also very risky. So what you see with Red Bull is their diversification. They own 
loads of other companies and teams. So 87% of their profit, which was equivalent to 2.1 billion, um, went back into either advertisement or sponsorship or buying clubs or companies. They currently have two F1 teams, AlphaTauri and Red Bull. That's their kind of B and A team respectively. They have four football teams. They have a hockey team and they run an unbelievable amount of events for numerous different sports, as I mentioned before. So a third of all their revenue goes back into, um, as I said, advertisement and marketing. They had a revenue of nearly seven billion in 2021, which was absolutely massive. And there's actually a small bit of steady growth in Red Bull. You would think with, you know, the introduction of loads of different energy drinks, such as Monster, with all the flavors, etc., that Red Bull might be taking a hit. But Red Bull, more than likely, due to their consistent um, investment in sponsorship and the market, they are steadily increasing. So, you know, maybe the fact that Verstappen won could have resulted in maybe 2 or 3% growth, which, if that's the case, it's worth it. They're talking billions here. And if you just look at how they have invested in football, it shows how smart they actually are. It's not like they've just bought a random club and decided, yeah, we're going to change this altogether. They've bought four different clubs. They have one in Brazil. I think they came sixth last year in the Brazilian league. So they're obviously a decent side. They have one in um, Austria, Salzburg. Um, great side. They also have one in Germany, Leipzig, also one of the top teams in the top division of Germany. And they have one in America. So if you follow a footballer's career, he could start and finish his career with Red Bull. He could start in Brazil, break through there, move to Austria, play in the Austrian League. He could then move to Germany, play in the German League at a high level, Champions League. And maybe when his career is coming to an end, he could move over to America. Now, obviously, you've seen different players be sold or bought from Leipzig. And it's gone a different gone a different direction, but Leipzig or Red Bull will have the first choice. They will have the contract control. So they can dictate what players come and go if they so wish. But they still want to be a profitable venture. So if they get the right money... Um, they will sell a player. On Transfer Market, it tells us information about Leipzig and it says that it has an overall transfer record of plus 5 million, which is absolutely unbelievable. You know, most clubs are in debt. If you look at some of the players they've sold, some massive players for massive fees. Naby Keita to Liverpool, 54 million. Werner came from there, nearly 50 million. Upamecano, 40 million. Kanate, 40 million. Uh, Huang actually came from there. Uh, they got 15 million from. So, like, they have a, a, a fantastic system of buying and selling players, which is essential if you want a, a growing club. The club is worth around 400, 500 million, they reckon. And they also looked at New York Red Bulls, that's the one in America, that was bought for 25 million and they estimated at nearly 300 million in value now. So, Although Red Bull will claim that their, their main profit, their main venture is still from the Red Bull can, all these other companies that they have bought are currently in the green. If they sold them in the morning, they would probably make millions, if not billions, in profit. 
The problem with that is that it still all relies on the can. I've always wondered, and I know it might be pessimistic, but I would love to see what would happen if in the morning the Red Bull can, for some reason, was off the market. Just click and it disappeared. Maybe not banned off the market because that gives you know a negative connotation to the drink but if it just disappeared how would these ventures survive are they self-sufficient i could imagine some of them are but they still need massive financial backers even the likes of the f1 that is probably as i said their more successful ventures as well as leipzig but we know f1 needs a massive amount of sponsorship and investment and I'd wonder where that would come from or how they would be sufficient without the drink. If you also look at the figures from the F1 team, it is recorded that they've made an overall profit last year. One of the very few teams that have. Most of have lost 20, 30, 40 million. So Red Bull have found a way to make their ventures sustainable and not only that, but profitable as well. So... Looking at the research and looking at how some of the ventures have done, you would say that it's sustainable. I would love to see the figures on smaller events, such as mountain biking. Are they investing in mountain biking at a loss to maintain their image and to maintain their brand? It would make sense that they'd still make money because the larger sports are being profitable, even if the smaller sports are costing a small bit. In the grand scheme of things, we can see that Red Bull is being extremely profitable. And there's no signs of slowing down. Even with an increased concern around health and well-being, the brand still makes money and is also growing at the same time. So Red Bull are a perfect example of why marketing matters. Although they were kind of ahead of the game and one of the first major energy drinks to the European market, they've stayed on top because of their consistent exposure it is always on people's mind you don't go to a bar and ask for a jaeger and boost or anything you say red bull red bull is practically the standard translation for energy drink and without sounding too philosophical red bull has shown us that you get out what you put in they put in massive amounts of money as we said in 2021 87% of their $2.1 billion in profit was put back into marketing or sponsorship. This has helped them diversify and continue to dominate the global market. Without sounding philosophical, Red Bull is a living example of you get out what you put in. They invest a massive amount of money into their drink and they reap the rewards. They are also consistently planning for the future in case there is a massive change in the drink market and their drink does go bust they are putting a, a lot of eggs in a lot of different baskets they are preparing to become self-sufficient without the drink and they have successfully done that in a couple of their ventures they have stuck to their business model for years they have a high price per unit they also outsource the making of the cans and filling of the cans and they still continue to dominate the sports market in terms of sponsorship. They are also very shrewd in the market and they've broken a couple of rules and made a couple of people unhappy, especially in the German league with RB Leipzig. They have 
essentially broken one of their main rules, which is the 50 plus 1 rule. The 50 plus 1 rule in the German league states that at least 51% of the club has to be owned by the fans. And this is done to prevent big corporations to have full control of their club and do whatever they like. Like you see with Cardiff a couple of years ago, you had a um, rich family come in, they changed the badge, they changed the colour of the whole club. So, to prevent stuff like this happening, Bundesliga brought in the 50 plus 1 route. And how Leipzig avoided this was you had to be a member or had to be on the board to in order to fulfil the 50 plus 1 route. So you can't just have a random crowd of fans just say, oh, we get to make decisions. No, these fans sign up as members of the board and they make decisions together. They might have a representative. The, the fans might have one or two people that represent what they feel and what they want and they portray these messages to the board. And as I said, what Leipzig did was they, at the time, Leipzig were an extremely small club. So they filled up people that worked for Red Bull and put them on the board. So they still had the 51 plus or 50 plus one rule, but the 50 plus one were Red Bull employees. So they made decisions based on Red Bull's interests. Although controversial, Red Bull did things like this to gain an upper hand. And a lot of people disagree with it, but you have to appreciate the effort. So as a company, Red Bull changed the sponsorship market. Their innovative business plan and the fact that they can plan into the future allows them to stay on top and allows them to be one of the most unique and interesting companies in the world. They play a massive role in sport. If you think about all the different clubs and ventures that I've discussed, without Red Bull, we would be at a loss. And not only in major events or major teams, such things as the Soapbox Challenge or the cliff diving. These are unbelievable events that bring out people and whether they're buying Red Bull or not, they're getting out and they're having a great time. So Red Bull, they make sport a better place. They have done wonders for small sports specifically, which has been so important for particular sports. Some sports may not be able to compete on a global scale or even compete at all without some investment from Red Bull. Snowboarding, dancing, drone racing, surfing, they reckon that they're involved in nearly 500 sports. So Red Bull is the backbone of some extreme sports. It is essential for their growth and for their survival. And so I've been harping on about how important Red Bull is and how great it is, but it's also made some errors. And I'll leave you with this. Be careful about what you say in your, your slogan, because we all know Red Bull gives you wings or so they say and I think it was around 2012-2013 they had to pay over 13 million following claims of false advertising so people who drank Red Bull claimed I thought it was going to give me wings so if you notice in the ads it actually changes it from one eye I think there's two eyes now and sometimes multiple eyes because they're saying well I'm not saying it gives you wings because they're changing the way it's spelt and if you had if you had a receipt or you um, claimed that you bought Red Bull between a certain amount of years, I forget what years it was, you were entitled to $10 refund or two Red Bull products that um, equaled $15. So I don't know if it's still on, but maybe you can give them a go and see can you get any money back. So yeah, that's Red Bull in a nutshell. A very complicated, diverse 
future planning nutshell. So hopefully that was somewhat enjoyable and entertaining. As I said, I enjoy researching and learning about these particular random topics that I probably wouldn't have looked into only for this. If anyone has any suggestions on random topics or they have questions on a particular topic, let me know. Could be food for thought. I'll see you in the next one. Take it ham and cheese it.